Welcome to Commerce Talks episode number 54. Today my guest is John Reed. He's building enterprise communities since 1995 and he's doing it in the US. He has seen a lot of projects starting with ERP projects in the 90s, transformational projects in the early 2000s and then of course projects with AI first and personalization in the 2010s. We are talking about success cases and cases that weren't that successful. I'm still searching for the blueprint of a company that managed a successful transformation in order to be competitive again against Amazon or Zalando or ASOS. And John makes a very good point here, um, defending Target and Bed Bath and beyond and saying, okay, there most likely won't be a very successful transformation if um, I hold up to my standards. But there's many, many, many transformations uh, which were very successful. And we are diving into some specifics of Bed Bond and Beyond Target and other companies. And it's very interesting to get John's um, US-based view. And maybe we are coming to a comprehensive conclusion at the end so have fun with john reed in commerce talks number 54 john welcome to the commerce talks podcast episode number i don't know i have to look it up anyways uh, uh today <laughs> i'd like to learn uh, a little bit more about like uh, transformation cases in the u.s so uh, uh you've been author and analyst in the US for quite some time now, longer in the e-commerce uh, industry than I am. So, but let's start uh, uh, with uh, introducing you properly. So who are you and what do you do for a living? Well, thank you. I'm a co-founder of Diginomica. We've been around for about eight years. And what we really try to do is look at real world transformations, what works, what doesn't, and why. We view transformation pretty broadly. We, we want to look at it in terms of process, culture, and technology. You could accuse us of being laggards in some ways because we don't want to overhype new technology that isn't proven. We want to understand what's really working in project settings and also where companies are still running into to challenges. And that's really been our focal point. And for myself, I, I have a pretty broad coverage area because I really I try to look at I try to follow the transformation wherever it goes. My historical background is in is in ERP specifically back in the 90s. Um, but these days, I've done a whole lot with CX, uh, which has kind of wound me up into these retail conversations, and also some stuff with supply chain. Because uh, to me, like you really to really understand why these transformations fall short and and where they do succeed, you have to really be able to look at it from one end to the other, and and, and there's no way to get around that. Okay, maybe let's start with a uh, with a bold claim. Uh, I told you already uh, when it comes to transformation, mm. uh, because uh, I was involved in a lot of uh, uh, conferences and keynote speeches and all this stuff. And I'm usually confronted with the question: Okay, can you please name some success cases when it comes to digital transformation, uh, especially in the retail space? And then, uh, if I have to think about all these hundreds of different retailers I I met and I read about and I've analyzed over the last decade. There's no retailer that comes to mind when you really want to show a success case which was able to be on a competitive level again against uh, uh, the pure play company. So there was never 
a Walmart, Target, Sears, uh, uh, where digital transformation led to a situation where they could get back customers from Amazon or from mm -hmm. ASOS or from whatever company. So, and I, I would be really happy today if you can uh, tell me about real success cases. Well, I'm not sure that I can because I don't really agree with how you framed the whole conversation, to be honest with you. I, I view transformation as a long-term continuum, and I think it's a little unfair to say, well, because you can't find a, a complete success that transformation doesn't work or it's discredited as an approach. Um, because I do believe that the retailers that were more aggressive with this early on pre-COVID generally fared better during COVID. I think we have to learn to move beyond the idealism of, oh, this company has transformed and is kicking ass versus not. I think retail, mm. at least in the US market, has some inherent problems that are incredibly difficult to solve, including the role of employees and, and the experience that employees impose upon themselves and, and anyone who walks in the store. And why is it that employees get such a raw deal uh, and, 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 and end up getting in the way of Your, your good experience that you would call a, a transformative experience. And I, I don't think employees get a fair shake in a lot of cases. So there's a lot of structural reasons why transformation is difficult. But um, I, I, I would tend to agree with you that, that, that there's very few role models of, of stores that have really dramatically transformed. But one thing I would also caution you against is I don't believe in these distinctions between like, oh, You should you should be kicking Amazon's butt in e-commerce versus what you're doing in the store. I mean, the key thing with the, the modern store is the blurring of the lines between e-commerce e and store, and how that gets becomes a more fluid experience for the consumer, who expects a fluid experience in that regard. And I and I would say, while I don't know, I would call call Target a complete sex success story. I do think Target is a fairly good example of a company that has that has done pretty well. And I have looked at some very specific reasons why they're doing it. I mean, right now they're currently looking to expand store locations, but at the same time, they've had a whole lot of growth that kind of blurs the lines. For example, their um, drive-up service is 21 times higher than it was two years ago, $1.3 billion of incremental sales. That's not something that just happens. That That's not something you just wake up and oh, we got all these pickup sales. That's great. There's a very specific technical and architectural reason on the back end and a very specific strategy that resulted in those sales. So I, I understand your premise, but I, I, I think if you're going to apply such a rigid criteria, you're, gonna, you're never going to be satisfied. Okay, I agree. So for, for, the, for the listeners from Europe uh, that are not so uh, familiar with Target, or Target is a, uh, is, a, is a retailer in the US with, I think, uh, almost um, 80 billion or 90 billion dollars in revenue on a yearly uh, basis. Do you know the online share from Target? So how much of this revenue is traded online already, John? Do you know that? Yeah, so I'm just having a look at their most recent numbers here. Sorry, I didn't have this part in front. Um, digital comp sales grew 50% in a first quarter digital comp year over year. Um, so, but 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 what they what they go on to say is that for us, the distinction between store sales and digital sales is largely irrelevant because their unique stores as a hub model, more than three quarters of the digital sales were fulfilled by stores. So more than 95% of Target's first quarter sales were driven by store assets, store inventory, and store teams. And so that's why this distinction between e-commerce versus store becomes really problematic. 
I agree here, but the question is, um, does this lead to a superior strategy? Because um, um, we can use Target or we can use Best Buy. Uh, uh, um, if we uh, let's take the um, the company that is um, the, the competitor of Best Buy in Europe, which is a media market, they are very proud of store pickup uh, quota, which is like 50% of all their online orders is like store served, so to say. But this leads to the problem that neither the experience is in the store is perfect nor on in the online shop. So they cannot compete with the Amazon experience and they can most likely not compete with a, with the experience of a, of a retailer that is really focusing on the offline experience. So 80% of all their resources uh, and time goes into this, uh, into this case where people can pick up stuff. And um, I've, in an interview, I've described uh, uh, um, uh, click and collect at the, Uh, worst uh, of both worlds, though you cannot touch the product before and you have to drive yourself. So, <laughs> uh, um, and, and in most cases, it's, it's actually uh, um, 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 a solution where uh, a Target or Best Buy or Media Market cannot offer delivery options for a fair price. Uh, and, 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 and I think that's a problem. So stores think it think e-commerce or transformation from a store perspective. They think, okay, how can a store fit in? But the customer, they're not thinking in store. They're not thinking in channel. They just, they just experience uh, uh, something online, which is superior from what they saw from Target. But you describe Target as a good example when it comes to transformation. So may maybe we can focus on the, on the thing they, they've done better than uh, than than others can can you describe some or where they stood out well, well sure but i i would i would also make the point that if you know you know stores like target and best buy are not going to lie down because amazon's doing really well so if you're hoping that they're just going to lie down because amazon's doing a better job it's not going to happen um, I mean, the, the thing, if, if, if stores were so irrelevant, then, then why did Amazon buy Whole Foods? I mean, there's a reason why, why, why is Amazon buying all these logistics locations all over the U.S. close to, close to people's homes? There's a reason why space matters. Now, look, a lot of these retailers would love to re-rationalize their store footprints and start over, but that's not, that's not realistic. That, that's not a world that can happen. Um, I mean, in terms of Target, I think the interesting thing there is to understand that the front-end transformation requires a, a back-end transformation as well. And, and you're never going to get one without the other. And so one interesting thing that came up to me was talking with Target C, CIO at NRF uh, last year before the pandemic. Now, keep in mind that, um, and that piece is up on Diginomica, but keep in mind that, that um When, when when we have these conversations, we are like in pandemic times where we haven't been able to get face to face with people as much, which has been a little bit of a disappointment to me for tracking these stories. But the commerce thing is very interesting. So what what they did on the back end side is they have one technology platform uh, that serves ta target what they call target commerce, whether it's digital or physical. So in other words, if you put an item in your basket online or if you scan it through self service put it in a bag, you're interacting with the same technology. They don't build technology just for digital anymore. They build it for, for commerce. That's, that might sound like a really simple thing, but you and I were talking before we started taping. Application silos, old school application silos are a huge impediment to serving the modern customer properly, right? You, you were just talking about the problems with picking up on the curb, 
Well, if your backend systems are a mess, then you're not going to be able to, to fill in the front end properly. And so what the target CIO did is they basically built an open source inf- you know, infrastructure around a lot of these tools and tried to break down those, those data silos. And as a result of that, at the time when I wrote this piece in 2020, their, their online conversion rate had increased to 30%. Mobile made up half of digital sales. You know, these things, you know, that that's very, very similar to what Bed, and Be- Bed Bath & Beyond was quoting at that time. Though I'm not as confident, mind you, in Bed Bath & Beyond as I am in Target. So it's a little bit of a different story there with, with Bed Bath & Beyond. Um, how, how long uh, did it take the CEO, CIO or the tech team of Target to restructure the backend? Because I've been involved in many cases and uh, obviously the modern CIO sees the shortfalls of the old yep. infrastructure, the very ERP-led infrastructure where nothing was prepared for real-time, uh, uh, real-time transactional cases. Um, right. The problem was because they were operating in a live environment with uh, 10 billion or 80 billion in revenue, like like Target, there was never the moment, or was there was there was obvious often never the potential to uh, rebuild everything. Because if you can uh, can get mm-hmm. rid of everything, the new structure would uh, would look like very different. So how long took it the Target team to rebuild the backend uh, uh, so they can really roll out new features uh, uh, in an easy way? Well, this was uh, a pretty significant uh, project over the course of at least four years when I talked with them where they were building uh, on open source. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't want to get too fancy with words like Kubernetes, but basically, you know, uh, they they put each uh, store on its own Kubernetes cluster, branching it out. Um, you know, basically, it's just a different model of IT that is much more about, it's not that kind of legacy system that you think about where pulling data out of it is a complete chore, you now have abilities to actually, on a store level, pull the data out that you need, which opens up a lot of options, both in terms of logistics, but personalization on a store by store basis. But I'm not going to lie. I mean, it it took them years to do this. Um, And not all stores like have the resources the target does. I mean, for example, they have a 1,000 member data science team. <laughs> I mean, look, I mean, a lot of stores can't can invest in that. And to your point, we're going to see a lot of retailers fail. Um, they're not all going to make it. I mean, the estimate I was looking at before this podcast is that 9% of retail stores in the US are, are going to be uh, closed by the end of 2026. So your point around some of the carnage that is going to happen around these old models is not wrong. Um, and I'm not going to necessarily say that retailers have have figured all of this out. Um, and like I said, I think there's some endemic problems around the employee experience that, that we can talk about. But um, but you know, I I I think it's fair to say to call to call Target a modest modest success at this point. I don't think I'm going to use thrilling success, but I'm going to use modest success. Okay, and and you've also uh, just named uh, Bad Bath and and beyond. So why are you not so confident with them? Uh, I saw on your uh, on your website many articles uh, about it. So what have they? What should have they done better from your point of view? Um, well. Look, I mean, I think they've, I think they've had some some ups and downs with um, with with their pickup experience, though. Um, though 
they have seen a big increase in so-called BOPIS, buy online, pick up in store. Um, to me, it's a little bit of a demand issue as well. I just, I don't know. I, I just feel like Target has a little bit of a jugular on consumer demand. And I just don't run into many people say, I want to go to Bed Bath & Beyond today and get these essentials or whatever. Um, I, I think it's a little bit harder for me when I think about the brand positioning of Bed Bath & Beyond. I think it's a little more of, of a tricky territory as far as how often am I going to go into that store in a given year, for example. Um, so that's got to do with a little bit of their special specialization that they're that they've undertaken. Um, they're also like, like as you described, the back end system part. So they're still going through an ERP upgrade. They uh, last February they announced Oracle was going to be their ERP provider of the future, um, which is this two hundred fifty million dollar technology investment roadmap that what they have the, plotted what was out. Was the ERP of the past for them? Uh, in the article, we have legacy suite. So I think they may, they did not want to cast aspersions on who, uh, who, whoever was providing the okay. uh, arguably poor experience in the past, which you run into a lot. Sometimes it's hard to actually get the, uh, the words out of these people and to get them to let you uh, publish it. Mm -hmm. um, but um, the point being that I view their backend transformation as in an earlier stage. And so until I see the results of that, I, I have to question it because like you're saying before we started taping, it's not a no-brainer that, that an ERP implementation is going to lead to a better result for your customers because an ERP is historically an internal system. So you do have to do a lot of work to make sure that your ERP is connected with the proper external systems. I agree. So, uh, and I will, I will give you some examples why uh, uh, what I think about the Bed Bath and Beyond um, uh, project. But uh, let's assume you're going to be the CIO of Bed Bath and Beyond, and you know mm -hmm. the old ERP, the legacy suite, uh, isn't the uh, trick anymore. Um, and it won't serve, especially for new commerce cases, new front ends, mobile commerce. Uh, um, uh, even the BOPIS case is probably way hard to uh, structure mm. because in the old ERP structure, you don't get the data and, and, and the inventory data um, from the stores, for example. Um, what would be your move? So in what would you invest first? Would you also go for a new ERP provider uh, uh, solving the backend problem, now stopping everything for the next five years, and then you solve the problem? So what, what's your strategy? Well, so you raise a really good question, and there is no one right answer to how to treat your older ERP system. Um, but the one thing I would tell you is that you certainly cannot, even if your ERP system is going to provide you with a lot of benefits if you modernize it, you cannot wait three years in this environment and hope for the best. So you have to have a parallel track along with your ERP system with various customer-facing systems or supplier-facing systems that you're that you're going to be able to move into place much more quickly because, you know, you have to be able to say, look, um, we need to upgrade our mobile app and that's going to happen in the next three months because you, you can't go to your shareholders and say, look, in three years, we'll be done with the CRP and then you're really going to like our numbers. It just, you know, they're going to laugh you out the door. Um, so you have to have things in parallel. And one of the biggest things you have to have is an overriding data platform strategy. You have to understand Where is all this data going to reside and how is it going to be a benefit? Um, because one of the things that you run into, and this was the case when I 
looked at Staples, but also Target, is that real-time understanding pinpointing inventory accuracy is actually a pretty big e-commerce problem because if you run a high transaction e-commerce site, you you want your customers to immediately see inventory updates in real time, right? Because if I order something and then you have to send me an embarrassed email saying, well, actually we were out of stock, but we didn't know it because our ERP system sucks and it's not integrated with our e-commerce. So so you that's the value in that, but you cannot make customers wait. And so you have to understand what your data platform is going to feed into. And so your customer apps that you build, the data from that, which you're going to be using for demand forecasting in the future, has to eventually reside in the same place as your ERP data in some capacity. Now, whether you're going to use an analytics provider to do that, or whether you're going to build your own data platform and hire your own data science team, whatever it is you're going to do, you, you better figure that out. And, and, and I don't know enough about what Bed Bath & Beyond is doing in that area to tell you what they're up to. But that would be my concern is don't walk around bragging that in three years going to have a great ERP system. Yeah, so I I agree with your view on uh, on, on on the yeah on the internal um, characteristics of an ERP system. So having a new ERP system won't solve anything for the customer, right? So it's just like uh, maybe it has has a better integration in the production uh, uh, um, setup or for finance. Well, actually, it can solve some things for the customer, as I described. If it can if it can help the customer see the visibility of their product and see what's actually available. And also once it's delivered, if you can show me exactly where it is, like, oh, we're actually building your product right now. Like someday you're probably going to be able to go online and see folks building your custom product. Uh, And and if you can show them that and show them the data, that kind of data builds trust and understanding with the customer. So I do think it can impact the customer positively, but at the same time, like you said, you cannot wait. And, And also look, um, I haven't discussed this, but there's 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 transformation method, transformation methodologies called ring fencing your ERP, where you might choose to just pull the data out of your old system and and postpone the upgrade, and maybe in some cases that will work. Yeah, but here here's a problem from my point of view. So you have now invested in a two hundred fifty million dollar project. Uh, you have all your um, your top management resources really focused on these things, and you essentially like stop anything else, even if there's like kind of a parallel strategy, let's say there's like a second domain, uh, uh, which you then rebuild uh, uh, with another system uh, just to just to satisfy some of the uh, business development people with their new feature requests that are coming in every day. That won't make the trick. And, the new, and with the old ERP, the legacy ERP, the idea also was to have a future-proof system, and they invested in that uh, a lot over time. And uh, and the the only common denominator of success we saw in digital business models, or in general, like in, in business models, is the ones that can adapt faster to market changes and customer uh, demand changes. Those will win. And um, as you don't know what will be the mood of the customers in three years, on what device he or she will buy, or um, right. or how personalized the experience, and we we'll talk about personalization in a minute, will be. I think it's the wrong directions to start with the ERP. You need to start with uh, uh, with a strong customer cohort. Maybe uh, need to need to figure out how to bring stuff from Bed Bath and, and beyond in a, in a central warehouse, and start with the customer experience and actually castrate the understanding of an ERP and just make it a better uh, a better warehouse management system because everything well, that counts on the customer experience will happen on the commerce side in the future, like uh, price calculations. You want to have like a, a personalized 
price setup in the future with personalized discounts, uh, maybe based on the uh, delivery time and delivery distance, uh, um, a, a different price setup, and all the stuff that is relevant now and where you have to test and learn to find out what's going to be the future in this in this business will be postponed for the next 10 years. But to, let's be honest, the project won't be finished in four years. So I, I've never mm -hmm. seen a project that worked. I've never seen a project manager working on an ERP project that after the project was finished, came to me or came to the boss and say, hey, this project was so much fun, really cool. Everything everything worked out. Let's do it again. It's always, uh, it's all, it, it, it's always doomed somehow because it's too complex. It's too big. And the only way to win those stuff is to slice and dice it into smaller projects that are customer focused and not ERP focused, and then find out what works in the future. So that might have yeah, been- Yeah, well, a, we, we don't, yeah. We, I don't think we agree on that point, but that's okay. Uh, look, look, I mean, I, I don't, I just don't go down with the generalities you're describing because I think every customer situation is different. And some customers are in a lot of pain with their old systems to the point that they're just not operationally effective. And And the amount of pain that they have, like, for example, you run into customers that because mm -hmm. they've acquired certain companies, they have 35 or 40 different systems. There, there's, there becomes a point of pain where you have to, have to upgrade. The other thing about modern ERP systems, if they're implemented correctly, is that it becomes much, much easier to absorb new functionality in these systems if they are cloud-based and if they are done properly. But having said that, I think where you and I are aligned is that you have to have a rich, religious customer focus. And... I just happen to think that a modern ERP system can support that. Having said that, I'm not saying that every company should go out and modernize their ERP. I would, I would emphasize customer-facing projects first and foremost, but I do disagree with the idea that you can only do one thing at one time. I mean, Bed Bath & Beyond, they're juggling multiple things. They're building regional distribution centers. They're building out their digital commerce. They're expanding their BOPIS, and they're doing their ERP. They think they can do all th these things at once. Whether they can, we will find out. But I do understand your skepticism because a lot of these projects, these multi-year projects have gotten CIOs fired and they really haven't delivered historically. And that's a whole different conversation. But we're, if you'd rather talk about personalization, we can shift yeah, that. We're, 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 it will be my next question, but just one statement. So um, when you do like a back of the envelope calculation of successful um, digital businesses, you can take the, mm -hmm. the, the online revenue and divide it by the number of people working in IT. And it always ends up with the same number, two to four million per developer IT product manager, whatever. Hmm. So a big, a big business, like the target one, I just researched online, it's like uh, 10 billion it was last year, would require like 5,000 people um, to stay on top of things. And what I see in those older businesses that try to transform is, um, I think a better part of beyond is that's like a business with uh, 10 billion in revenue, 10, 12 billion, more or less. They most likely will have an IT workforce with 2,000 people where like 1,000 are like blocked already with the ERP system. Hmm. And they and, and and let's assume they want to transform to 40% digital, 4, 4 billion, 5 billion in the future. They would need to hire now already 2,000 people, not only for the ERP project, but also for other projects. But what we see in reality is they don't want to spend this money. Often they can't afford it. That's that's on another uh, that's on another paper. Um, but um, yes, I agree. They should paralyze a lot of stuff, but. Because they cannot afford hiring the amount of people they would need to paralyze all the smart things mm -hmm. at once, they should focus on the 
customer facing uh, stuff first because oh absolutely but I'm, I'm just absolutely but i'm pointing out that if a customer's on a website and they try to order something and then they find out it's not in stock that's a very sour experience yes yes and if yeah. your back-end systems aren't aren't well integrated then you wind up botching the e-commerce experience so i yeah. I'm, I'm just i'm really pushing hard with this idea that you can isolate the e-commerce from everything else i don't think you can now whether bed bath and beyond will be a success story we're gonna have to wait let's years see to let's find see out. we, we, we so gotta have this yeah so yeah. let's let's come back you and me in yeah. three years and we can yeah. continue the bed bath and beyond conversation i i agree i agree but but maybe let's let, let then focus on uh on on the on the on the uh challenges of e-commerce itself because there were so many okay. like, new features and technologies uh, presented over the years uh, i think uh 10 years ago it was um content commerce so the more stuff you would have been written about uh i don't know uh your towels at bed bath and beyond the better the conversion would be all this stuff and but the uh but the thing that uh and now it's uh, ai <laughs> i think it's also a thing you're writing mm. about but the thing that failed most from my point of, of view is personalization because uh, uh yeah. we we have we have now so many like big pure play websites and we can look to look to amazon uh, um that claim this personalization thing for a long time, but still, if I go on the website, I see all all this stuff. It, it does not feel personalized at all. If I go to Zalando, which is a fashion online website in in Europe, I still do. I still see all the sizes that don't fit, all the brands I don't like. I, I see women's kids yeah. collection. So, if those websites cannot do it online only uh, or pure players really um, really well, they were created only a couple of years ago with billions and billions of revenue so what's happened actually to personalization so why isn't it working the way it was promised a couple of years ago well this this is this is an excellent topic and i i think you and i are going to find a lot of agreement on this i make a little bit of a terminology distinction which may not really carry across the industry but I'm violently critical of hyper-personalization, which I view as kind of trying to identify the individual and cater to them. But I do think that some level of broader personalization based on demographic type trends and behaviors does work. So for example, recommendation engines online do boost overall revenues. I mean, I have this thing up from a Salesforce piece that I did a while back where, uh, let me just tell you what they said. They said, um, uh, Across Salesforce customers, 5% of shoppers clicked on a product recommendation that was powered by AI. Um, recommendations are not only driving sales, but they're driving a higher spending consumer. That, that accounts for 30% of revenue uh, of, of all the site revenues. And based on their research, they're finding that the consumers that click on product recommendations powered by AI are five times more valuable, meaning they spend five times more on average. So you do run into those kinds of stats where, so basically it's the kind of thing where when I'm on Amazon, Amazon's really good at kind of showing me stuff in rows of products. And I might, three of them might be irrelevant, but one of them probably is. And they're, let's face it, they're kind of guessing. And, and to me, that's the extent of personalization that does work is basically taking guesses. Where I think it starts to really go wrong is when vendors have the arrogance to say that they can anticipate in the moment what you or I need. And that's when it starts to totally fail. I mean, and, and, and we've all seen examples of it, right? Where uh, you bought a suitcase and it's the last suitcase you're going to need for five years. And from then on, you see luggage every single day uh, for, uh, for three months. Yeah. What the hell? They're thank, just you, taking, thank you, Critio here. Yeah. They're <laughs> taking a totally wild guess. Mm. And, and, and it's actually really the height of arrogance to, to think. And mm. part of the problem, Alexander, is that 
human beings are complex. We have very complex motivations. And, and AI is all about this notion of context, which is that it, in, in, in a moment, AI can understand the context that I'm thinking about and present me with the perfect thing. But the problem is, good luck with that. Your context changes minute by minute, hour by hour, right? One moment you're thinking about this podcast. The next moment you have a text from your mother and she's sick and you've got to figure out what's going on with her. And then, and then you hear from your employer and they need something by 3 p.m. Your context is constantly shifting. The idea that AI can figure out that context in an intelligent way is just absolutely ludicrous. Um, but having said that, these recommendation engines that kind of show you a broad range of relevant products, they do work. I mean, it, it, the same thing happens on YouTube where you know, you see a bunch of videos. Yeah, about eight of them are irrelevant, but one or two of them probably are, and you keep clicking, and that's sort of the goal. And I think the good news for, for e-commerce players is that some of that technology via various startups is starting to become more available to them. So there's more off-the-shelf options coming out now, as opposed to, because if I'm a smaller provider trying to compete, I can't compete with whatever Amazon's spending on that. So I think we are seeing some improvements, but I think we have to keep it real as far as, yes, it might help you bump your revenues in certain instances, but it's I would argue it's not the key to your business model because if, if I were to pick a key to your business model right now, it's things like loyalty and subscriptions and figuring out how you do repeat business with your customers and, and how do you increase that sense of loyalty and affinity with your customers? And no matter what size you are as a retailer or e-commerce provider, I think that's your core question. And AI, I think, plays a limited role in that, but it may, may play a role in some cases. Yeah, I I, I agree. Uh, um, I, I see some uh, light of, at the end of the tunnel when it comes to personalization, especially uh, uh, when you're looking at new uh, um, channels based on uh, WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger. So Some companies right. with a less um, complex assortment are able actually to identify you because you might have asked something about the new sofa or a new table right. or whatever. Uh, and then those companies often helped by AI uh, can give you some help based on your, um, um, maybe you want to know some, your order status or you want to add some feature to make to order product. And this um, these new channels are way more equipped for really delivering a personalized or hyper-personalized uh, um, experience. So I, I don't expect Amazon to deliver me a hyper-personalized experience in the next year. And um, YouTube works much better for me than, than you described. I think even five out of 10 videos are super relevant <laughs> for me. So it's right. sometimes very hard to get out of this <laughs> of this uh, consumption uh, cons YouTube consumption video. But in e-commerce, it never worked. And it's not, not the only technology that... Uh, was sold on a kind of overpromised, uh, overpromised uh, way. Yeah, yeah. So AI or uh, uh, it's, it's just the next thing. Do you see other overhyped stuff right now where people like to talk about, but uh, but not really helping Bed Bath and Beyond and Target in their daily business? <laughs> well, um, I, I think there are some interesting trends. I mean, I think live commerce, for example, is a really interesting trend. More active in China. Uh, Alibaba has really done some amazing work there, um, transitioning to online live streaming sales. Uh, and, and I think some of that works, but I think there is a lot of overhyped stuff too. I, I struggle a lot with this notion of retail theater, giving people experiences. Uh, a lot of times the, it, it's like, well, 
they talk about storefronts as destinations where you can get a, a magical experience. I'm I'm just not in touch with that. I, I think there are probably times where that can happen, but if you go into a store and, and they serve you this espresso for free and it's delightful and you taste like three kinds and it's lovely, well, the next time you go, that boost's not there. And the next time you go, you can't find a store associate to help you. And the next time you go, you you, you wait in a long line to return something. I, I'm just a little skeptical of this idea of storefronts as destinations in some glamorous sense. I think we have to be very practical and think about like if you have stores, why, why, why do you have them? And, and, and what, are the, what needs do they fulfill? And in many cases, like we were describing, it may be as simple as I just want to pull up to the curb and, and have someone meet me in the curb with what I want. That's not like theater. Come on. That's just someone loading some stuff into my car. If that's theater, that's the most boring theater I've ever seen in my life. Um, so I struggle with that. I struggle a lot with this notion of retail retailers with values. Like there's a whole push now around like, Oh, you know, younger consumers will only buy from the brands whose values they resonate with and stuff. And I know there's some data to back that up. I'm skeptical, man. I mean, uh, why is Amazon so hugely successful? Don't tell me young people think that Amazon, that the carnivorous vampire that is Amazon is aligned with their values when their delivery drivers are peeing in water bottles to try to keep on deadlines and, and, and causing traffic accidents outside my house, which I saw the other day. Come on, man. Um, you know, so I'm skeptical of a lot of that stuff. Um, but I do think there are some retail trends that do resonate, but those are a couple that really bother me. What we see uh, when we are following CIO discussions and CEO discussion, they they often argue not from a, a customer perspective, so what's the value for the customer, better delivery, uh, faster, uh, better search options, but really focus on tech terms like uh, microservice, for example, or API mm-hmm. uh, uh, um, led. And, and if you ask them, okay, wh- why do you do it? Yeah, because it's this like headless uh, thing. So mm-hmm. and I saw those terms in your in your uh, um, in your um, articles too. So, is there something behind it? So, is this really helping, or is it just like the new the new personalization term? And they like have, they'd like to have an update on that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think APIs are. Sur- I will defend APIs in the sense that you, when you have older systems, you need better ways of pulling data yeah. out of them. And I think APIs can be very effective. As far as headless, I try not to use that term in my articles, though I will admit that if you that a lot of digitomic articles have that term, you know, I, I think where you have to start is not a technical conversation, but a customer conversation. And you, where you start by is you start by saying, because one thing that bothers me right now is, is people thinking they know what the customer is going to want in the next six or 12 months. There's so much changing right now. We don't know totally the impact of the Delta variant on reopenings and and what customers are going to want month to month. But I think what we can be confident in is that every customer is going to want flexibility. They're going to want to be able to go from their phone to maybe even their Amazon device, to their computer, to the store. And, and as much as possible, they want those, 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 those different points to be connected so that no matter how they're interacting with you, it connects, right? So, okay, I changed my mind. I don't want this delivered. I want to pick it up or whatever it is. And and your technology has to be able to accommodate today's customer. From there, you can walk it back and say, what kind of technology do we have the technology to deliver on this? And then you look at it and you figure out what the best technology for you is to deliver on that. 
And I don't know, I, I don't use the word headless, so I can't say that I'm really infatuated with the term. Okay, then uh, getting back to getting to my last question. So, what kind of e-commerce business model um, surprised you the most in the last 12 uh, months, or what, what didn't you expect to happen, but that just happened then? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, Apart from live shopping at Alibaba, but I think you're you're not the uh, core cus the core audience for this feature. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think the problem is like like. I, I will say it surprised. It continues to surprise me how much what you might call celebrity influencers have impact on consumers. Because I'm not a celebrity culture person, but it is powerful, and I think we're going to see more and more of that mm. in the in the. We don't see that as much in the U.S. market as as you do in the Asian markets around live commerce, but you do see it quite a lot on Instagram, for example. And and I think this role of influencers and stuff. In influencing consumer behavior, I have to acknowledge the trend is real. But to your point, it's not something that really grabs me. I can't speak to it personally, but I, I can't deny the power of it. And 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 it's something that brands are going to be thinking a lot about. Um, you know, I think what what I found most interesting was what what always inspires me the most in retail is when smaller brands figure out how to use online tools to compete more effectively. And it's really hard because, um, because Amazon can be such a behemoth. Um, I, I, I'm encouraged, for example, by the growth of Shopify and the ability to kind of create more seamless e-commerce experiences if you're a smaller brand. Um, I've seen a bunch of stuff like just locally that surprised me as far as some local storefronts that really got pretty sophisticated around ordering online and picking up There were gaps and problems, but it was so much better than what I expected. Um, you know, and and you know, I even have this thing now where um, I did this like health analysis where I submitted some uh, biological material to an online vendor, and they came back with the report and analysis that I paid a reasonable price for. And now they're offering to ship me personalized probiotics that are designed based on the results of that test. That's that's kind of interesting, and that that now I'm not sure I'm going to do it, um, but you know that's a really fascinating like approach to me for like personal health, and and I love the way that that online commerce can sometimes level the playing field a little bit for cool ideas like that. Now, whether it will get traction enough to be a sustainable business, eh, you know, we'll have to find out. But I think the the pandemic forced the issue for a lot of stores that were maybe reluctant to really dive into that. And I think that's been a benefit. Very cool. So we definitely have to follow up on our, uh, on, on our prognosis yes. on, uh, on bad percent and beyond. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think we need to do it in the next four years. I think we can still talk about it in the next six years, yeah, six yeah, years we, from now, because <laughs> I don't expect anything to happen. Uh, yeah. We'll uh, probably there. have an email exchange in three yeah. years and I'll yeah. be like, I'll be we'll like be very... Alexander. You were right, man. Yeah. It's yeah. not done or, yet. <laughs> or we say, or, or they really outperformed. Let's see. There must be some success cases in market. John, thank you for your time. Thank you for that very stimulating discussion. Take care. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode. So please don't forget to rate this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or Spotify or whatever channel you are used to listen to this podcast. In the next episode, you will hear from Mickey, the founder and CEO from Walt. Walt is a delivery service funded with over 700 million euros. So it's a, one of the most successful unicorns from um, Finland. Very active in over 20 countries. And he will discuss with me how he became such successful and um, why they are more successful in many cities and many countries than some of their early competitors. So have fun and have a good day. <laughs>